Forward. Het allerlaatste blok van drie zeer, zeer mooie dagen. Studio Chef Verbijk. Nog eens het gezelschap krijg van de man die hier elke ochtend al een, een uur zat. Freddy, goedemiddag. Beginnen, beginnen en eindigen samen in Bert. En natuurlijk vind ik een zeer goed idee. Hoe gaat het met jou na drie dagen Studio Shift? Uh, beetje brain fried. <laughs> Ja, fantastisch veel mooie content gehoord. Hè. Dus uh, ja? heel, heel, heel boeiend om uh, collega's en gasten uh, ja. heel boeiende dingen te horen vertellen. Ja. Dus, uh, ja. Maar ik ben zeker dat je nog een beetje breincapaciteit over hebt om uh, eigenlijk ook nog een beetje vooruit te kijken. Het is het laatste blok, maar we kijken eigenlijk een beetje vooruit naar vanavond. Want in tegenstelling tot vorig jaar, waarbij het toch beperkt bleef tot de drie dagen radio Studio Shift, is er vanavond toch wel ook opnieuw weer uh, het fysiek event Shift. Ja, ja dus uh, Studio Shift was vorig jaar een, uh, ja, een stukje een backup waar we normaal een conferentie deden, een hele dag talks en workshops. Uh, dan die radio gedaan, bleek ja, eigenlijk gewoon fantastisch leuk om te doen. Dus deden we het opnieuw. Maar dit jaar inderdaad wel terug ook met een avond-event waar dat, ja, klanten en een aantal ja, gelukkigen genodigden. Ja, en bij die gelukkige genodigden zit er een speciale gast die je eigenlijk nu graag al eens uh, wilde spreken en aan het woord wilde laten. Ja, ik heb een gast van het, ay, niet, zo, niet zozeer een gast van het avondprogramma, maar een spreker van het avondprogramma uh, bij. En die gaat, ja, we hebben nog één blok te goed vandaag. En dat is nog een blok fast forward. Het blok waar we telkens vooruitblikken naar ja, wat komt er uh, digitaal allemaal op ons af. En mijn gast, ik ga. Uh, ik ga mijn gasten zichzelf laten voorstellen, maar die heeft kort gezegd een boek geschreven, The Next Billion Users, waar dat ze echt eens gaat kijken naar uh, wat kunnen we leren van ja, de toch wel grote delen van de wereld die nu pas online gaan komen. Ik ga switchen naar het Engels. En I'm going to introduce Pyle to our listeners. Welcome, Pyle. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Actually, I lied. I'm not going to introduce you. I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, well, then I can actually start to be very inventive, huh? So yeah, yeah, you, they don't Marxist, know who you are, so you I'm can... I'm an anti-capitalist, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to burn the town down. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I'm actually the, I mean, besides all those, which are also which true, true yeah. right? I mean, I'm uh, the boring part of my day job is, you know, I'm a professor at Erasmus University, so that gives it a good front for all sorts of stuff I do at the back. And, um, so all the besides, mischief you do, it's, yeah, exactly. it's okay, I'm a professor. Exactly, because they can't fire me, right? So I'm tenured. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, besides killing a bunch of people, I'll be fine. Yeah. So, But yeah, I've been, um, you know, I'm a digital anthropologist. So what that really means is that I look at what people do with their mobile phones and how they make sense of it in their everyday lives. But the people I've been looking at in the last sort of two decades has been people in low-income contexts and countries like slums in India to, you know, favelas in Brazil. So got a very global perspective of that, right? And that's what's the book about called The Next Billion Users. If, he, if, you, if I can come back to being a digital anthropologist, is that an established field or is, well, is it, this it just started again, something with Kyle. <laughs> no, no, it is. Look, it's basically a fancy term, right? But it actually means... See, anthropology is a very, very old field. It comes from the time where people... It was came from colonial times where they said, hey, let's go look at what those exotic species Creatures are doing, are doing exactly yeah, yeah. outside the West and, you know, let's civilize them. So it came from a very sort of... Let's see what, how do we transform these uncivilized beings into civilized beings. So anthropology has a very dark history. 
But uh, digital anthropology is really about a point where people are saying, how do we make sense of this notion of online life and offline life? And people don't know how to talk about this, right? And we've seen this with the pandemic, even more so. Questions are like, oh, is life now all online? Like metaverse is trending, right? So digital anthropology is really studying about how we are really immersed, what makes meaningful, you know, uh, moments for us. And we can be inhabiting online spaces like Facebook or Instagram, but we feel very much at home out there, right? Or if you're a gamer, you feel very much at home in that game. But when you go back to your so-called routine life, you could be a waiter at a restaurant, that has less meaning for you. So it makes sense how the two are related to each other, but exactly the kinds of why do you click on certain yeah. things? Who do you follow? Why do you speak in these terms? What kind of emoticons do you share? And it makes you, you online, right? And is that something that we just started studying because of smartphones and the internet? Or, or, or have we actually been studying how people interact with technology? We've always beforehand? studied how people communicate with one another, right? Even with, you know, old school technologies, like also the rotary phone, right? So it's never like this dramatic smartphone created this. But behaviors have changed because it has been groundbreaking in some ways where we are able to intersect with strangers from very different parts of the world, right? Um, the whole global village, which people are like, ah, come on, like, you know, I mean, which is to some extent true, because when the internet came up, right, uh, people thought, oh, we'll be one big happy Kumbaya family, everybody will connect with each other. And it didn't quite happen. They had the stats that showed majority of our Facebook friends were people we knew we or knew acquaintances. Exactly. We weren't going out and like randomly choosing, but that was in the West. My studies have shown that people outside there Two-thirds of them are total random strangers. They are like Indian boys are friending girls in Brazil because hoping they would like friend them and become their girlfriend, actually literally learn using Google Translate so they can start chatting them up. You know, so all kinds of stuff. And that is the norm. And so we've got like multiple internets going on in the world. And what we talk about and think about is really just, you know, our world, which is yeah. not resembling much you well, know it 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 reminds me of what you just said about anthropology is that it's it's somehow studying strangers but like with the sort of mindset that we then need to um push our own way of thinking upon those strangers whereas what you're basically saying is that these group these others they have their own set of behaviors and it it's 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 not a matter of of pushing our model upon them it's actually more they have their own habits and, and could be very interesting for us. Yeah, as well. I mean, look, we anthropology is about studying human behavior and understanding there's a diversity of human behavior that we possibly have no idea what it is. So we start with the premise that I have these assumptions about people, but let me go and look at what they're doing, what they're saying, who they do it with, and then let me reassess my assumptions. So it's equally about understanding who you are as a person, as a community, and wondering why are there such differences? So on one hand, you know, also empathizing that, oh, I'm surprised that you are in this tribal area in the Amazon forest, and yet you also like Shakira. Suddenly, it's very disruptive. You're like, hang on, we are similar in a sense. And so in one way, it also can create a sort of global solidarity, you know? Let's look 
after a, a short musical break, let's look at how uh, how these people are the same, sometimes different, sometimes the same, but maybe just setting the scene uh, to, to be clear. So the next billion users, that's quite a big group. You've mm -hmm. mentioned some geographies as well. So so who are these groups? Just like well, to these, have a picture. Yeah, so these people are mainly outside the West. So we're talking majority of them. They are in country, uh, continents like Africa, South Asia, which are the fastest growing demographically, right? In 2030, they're going to be the majority. And uh, yeah, and these are low-income populations, but are very upwardly mobile, very aspirational seeking. And just to give you a picture, they consume the internet far more intensely than you and I, like twice as much time, for example, than the average you know, young person in the US or Europe. So that's the snapshot, right? Yeah. All right, after the musical break, let's look at uh, maybe some myths that we have about these groups and then look at how their behavior is actually something worth looking at. Sounds good. Studio Shift. Fast forward. When you're tired, when you're lonely, you can just reach out and on. No, I'll be there. I'll help you weather the storm. Us together, nothing's ever
Shells and Love Tonight. Het is bijna kwart over vier. We zitten in ons laatste blok van vandaag in Fast Forward. Waarin we praten, waarin Freddy praat met Pyle Aurora. De auteur van het boek The Next Billion Users. Yes. Now, if you look at these next billion users, what are some of the most common myths? That's a very difficult word to pronounce. You have a <laughs> yes. Flemish myth accent like I do. But like, what are our misconceptions that we have about these? Because I can imagine that, that we have quite some assumptions that are maybe not entirely accurate. Yeah, I mean, you know, Firstly, in the last few uh, years, people have started to pay attention to them because they have been able to come online very fast and because of very cheap data plans and mobile phones. So, you know, next thing you know, now we know that, like, say, the way in which, say, something gets trendy can be shaped by people in Russia or in India or in China. And it's not like, oh, this is a Belgian, like, trend or this is, you know, you know you can hack it, so to speak. You can shape it. Uh, because of the algorithmic logic, right? But the myths... Is that, oh. is that one that we that we somehow think they don't contribute to, like, global culture? That they just imitate, maybe, but don't No, really? no, far from that. They have their... In fact, it's a reverse. Because So one of the... this Actually, that's a perfect uh, segue into this, right? Is one of the myths we feel is that we create here and disseminate elsewhere. So it's like we are the innovators and they're the consumers. And it's not that way. Actually, if we look at what's happening at fintech, China is already a decade and a half, two decades ahead. Uh, Facebook's metaverse is a total copy of a number of like these super apps in China from, you know, Tencent to Alibaba, Alipay, etc. So Singapore, if you want to really look at uh, the AI in urban design, they are like decades ahead in integrated urban design. So it's it's such a fallacy. And talking about, uh, you know, uh, uh, standard payment systems, uh, India and Bangladesh in three months during the pandemic came up with a standard payment system by the state in three months. Can you imagine that? So all these diverse fintech apps are like of no use because they you could, can't actually get that kind of payment. So you have to go through and allow it to be free, open software, etc. So there's a lot of innovation going on. And the reason is because they're looking at it in terms of economy of scale. They're looking at it in terms of a market where people can spend little, but you have billions of users. So just if you get a fraction of that demographic, you are making a profit. And moreover, that's just going to increase because the youth demographic is expanding. Look at Africa, 60% of the African continent can be considered as the youth segment. And it's the reverse in Europe is a decline in age, uh, Japan, you know, United States. So um, companies are innovating for the future and the future lies elsewhere, right? So this is a number of these myths is that we are the ones who are creating and innovating and we need to, out of the goodness of our heart, share with them, right? Um, But there's also another kind of common misconception is that surely if you're poor, you will use your limited data for, you know, smart stuff. Like, you know, come on. Yeah, like uh, find out how to educate yourself or get a job or something. And, you know, it's understandable. I mean, half the population in Nigeria almost is under under or unemployed. I mean, that's amongst the young people. That's some serious stats. 
On the other hand, they see the way to like hack the internet and a way to be creative to, you know, find out how do I do tutorials on Instagram and get money for it. You know, they are innovating the future of work in ways that we can't even conceive and we're just not looking there. So, you know, I think it's it's sheer arrogance which will blind us in terms of the ways in which creative and ingenious sort of activities are happening because they have to. They, it's not because they want to. There is a necessity that's driving it and a deep curiosity about the world, about themselves. They're young. They're, they want to self-actualize. They want to romance. They want everything that you and I have, but they don't have the resources. So they're coming to get it. And the internet is their space. It's their prime and often only leisure space, right? So that's that's indeed a big fallacy that we think that they're somehow only utilitarian, that all they think about is very practical stuff. And, Absolutely, and yeah, because they're not. I mean, in fact, one of the biggest drivers, uh, you know, that they, uh, why do they go work three jobs, for example, uh, to get like this extra top up for their data uh, bundle and It's uh, so they can romance because they're young. They just, you know, majority of them will have an arranged marriage. They'll never, and yet they're fed on these crazy Bollywood romances, which where the boy meets girl, gets, you know, falls in love, blah, blah, blah. And it's not happening. So you have this beautiful aspiration of romance and then you have the reality of arranged marriages, which is creating high discontent and they're not having sex. I mean, we are missing 60 to 70 million girls between China and India because of the gender bias. So there's a lot, lot of lonely men and they will never get a girl because they can't afford it. So porn sites are major. They're consuming porn like crazy. They are, you know, dating apps. Nigerian romance camps are completely making, you know, crazy amounts of money in like millions because they know this is an, a market that can be tapped and really, you know, go deep into it. So it's it, it's a, also a very disturbing area uh, of vulnerability based on the fact that people want joy, pleasure, you know, and some basic the fuel to live, right, on an everyday level. It's a, a very double-edged dating sword. Yeah. That, that, you, that you, you, it's it's a bit, yeah, it's, it's that you... You go on dating websites, but it's just a distraction before then. Yeah, the it's like, it's happens. so crazy when you see, like, for example, the entire app, like Le Amour, which has come purely based on the way that they can capitalize on these youth sentiments to get a girlfriend. They actually hire girls or hire people out there who will chat with them. And then every time you want to top up, you have to do gifts, right? So this is a very East Asia thing is... How do you monetize your online activities is through this sort of virtual gift giving. And uh, that's something which is emerging now. And Facebook is actually now looking at it, which has been going on for the last two decades. Go to Taiwan, go to any of these places you will see on these, you know, like a like Times Square. Fake girlfriend experience kind of thing or something. Well, it's, it, they don't see it as fake. They feel it as this sort of more authentic than nothing. Right. Because what they do is they have this relationship like online, like they actually, you know, a number of people would tell me and my team like, well, you know, she asked me how, what did I eat for lunch? Uh, how was my day? You know, I mean, nobody asked them that, you know, uh, they could be a Bangladeshi worker uh, sleeping in one room with eight beds and working 12 hours 
And this is the most meaningful conversation they've had in the day. So it matters to them. And maybe they know it's not real, but it's okay. It's some sort of fuel that is giving them the sort of fantasy world that they are loved, cared for. They have someone who thinks they are a human being who is interesting and, has, you know, what's your favorite song and, you know, share some jokes. And it's just the material of who we are, you know. It rehumanizes you. Yeah, and it's 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 that in itself. It's something that we would probably be judgmental of. Like we would, we would somehow look at an online chat relationship as being sub, like not real. It's a, it's a distraction. You maybe even be frowned upon. Like like how about trying real life? And then for them, it's actually probably one of the most meaningful engagements that they have yeah and it's happening here too you know how many of how many people i bet there's many listeners here who are in deadbeat marriages and uh, know that there's these lyrics right you can feel more lonely in a relationship you know you could be more alone there in uh, when you so because there's this expectation uh, that you're supposed to have companionship but you don't and so there's a lot of people who are lonely here and with the pandemic even more so we all have actually felt this around us it would be a lie to say that nobody has felt that right and so yeah it is a prevalent emotion it's a prevalent state of being maybe a chronic state of being that we are all in and this is also an opportunity for people to harvest these vulnerabilities which are global in nature so yeah, I was it just is going to say that that yeah. that their desires or uncertainties they're not that much different from what you and I have on a on a bad day. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's you know, I mean, of course we had they have more restrictions. For example, they they can't uh like they they're in a one room home, so you know, they with multiple generations, so they can't just take their boyfriend or girlfriend to their bedroom or they don't have many public spaces they can just meet freely. So it becomes even more crucial about discovering who they are online because they really don't have many alternative physical spaces. That's why I mean like by digital ethnography is because the authenticity of the self is possibly more so online than offline where you perform in a particular way, whether you're in Iran, I mean, or, you know, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, are women really showing their true selves in public spaces or even in their domestic spaces with all these social restrictions, religious restrictions, not really. You, they are self-censoring. But online, if they get the opportunity and get the certain amount of freedoms and privacy, you know, you will probably see more of who they really are and who, what they think than, you know, what they actually show you in an everyday like marketplace or even a domestic area. I like that I like that 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 idea of, of performing online and again it's it's really not that different from what people here are doing or young people here are doing for for them increasingly online it's it's where they actually probably are their most true selves. But here we sort of panic because we, 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 when people are online a lot, there's this panic, oh my God, these kids are becoming so superficial. They're so narcissistic. They like, oh my God, like, you know, you have entire like, uh, there's really this fear that they don't know how to have a relationship. The generation, future generations are completely doomed, right? Because the reality is that you will really be authentic in, in person. Yeah. And I understand that because we have a lot of spaces to be, you know, 
uh, to really connect genuinely with each other because we are fortunate that we are able to do so in many ways. I don't have to be something different for you, right? Even though I know you want me to, but, you know, I mean, I have the freedom to be who I want to be, but not so out there. So I think it's switched where they have more of a possibility to be their true self there. So, yeah. It's, it, it reminds me a bit how older people now look at young people spending time in Fortnite, for instance, and then they, they will typically go like, is this, is this how they socialize? Like, like some, somehow it's, it's not real. It's like uh, they should rather spend time together. And, but, but I'm like, no, but they are spending a lot of time together, probably more so than they would even do so in, in, in hanging out yeah, I mean, by look, a bench or something. Th see, so there's a real difference, right? Here we worry that, oh my God, these people are becoming lesser because they are going online in places like from Russia to oh, majority of the world's uh, countries are, you know, uh, more authoritarian in nature. Less than 5% of the world's countries are neoliberal democracies. So they are more panicky that people will actually genuinely uprise and show, their tr show the real country, you know, from Korea, North Korea to elsewhere. So they are more panicky that there'll be more authenticity coming online and we can't have that. Whereas here we are like, get them offline so they can be their authentic self. Yeah. So we are having two very different conversations. Both are moral panics, you know, uh, but of the opposite ends, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I suggest we continue the topic. And, and after a short musical break, I'd like to ask how, yeah, how maybe they sometimes have even more intense behavior that we know, but that they intensify even further. But first, some music. Studio Shift. Fast forward.
passeert ook nog de, tijdens deze studio shift uh, deze driedaagse Ben op de Valerie Pijven van Brian Adams. En dan verder in dat uh, heel interessant gesprek over de Next Billing Users met uh, Freddy en onze gast Paal Aurora. Yes. Been very insightful so far. But you mentioned some behaviors that these next billion users have that are behaviors we kind of know, but they intensify it like even further. You talked about online dating. Mm-hmm. Like, are, do you have other examples of 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 of, of behavior that's that's actually something we recognize, but like felt even? More yeah. Strongly? So, so I think what is interesting is that are not. I think few people know this. Like, actually, it goes to the way in which people communicate online. So, um, you know, in the early years of the internet, we we overemphasize text, right? I mean, if you look at Twitter, a lot of these, it's very text heavy. And in fact, literally, it's about characters. And the assumption is that we it's a preferred medium of communication. But majority of the world outside of the West are neoliterates, or have far less digital literacy skills and regular literacy skills. They may be school dropouts, or that they are not comfortable writing. They may know how to, you know, uh, they went to school, but they never really got to learn properly how to read or write. And that's the majority in many ways because of the failed school systems. So they took to visual emoticons, memes. They pushed, yeah, voice, actually voice recognition and uh, has pushed in advancement because of this demographic and also podcasting in India, for example, it's a huge market because it leapfrogs these obstacles and yet it communicates very essential and necessary aspects, which is like the curiosity about the world. And, you know, you have uh, platforms like Avaaz, which has come from uh, this company called Geo, which basically is a reliance-based company. And they were uh, in India, which is uh, responsible for making data the cheapest in the world. It used to be, you know, a couple of euros, which is unaffordable in India. Now it's like 30 cents a GB versus here. It's like six, seven euros, you know, and in the US it's $15. So it has made the internet accessible to so many millions and millions of people around the world. So they have changed the nature of, you know, the internet. Uh, Last year I was working with KPMG on a report and what we came up with and uh, was that the most intense uh, video consumption in India was by the lowest economic class. So, you know, you have to... That's probably the opposite of what you would expect. Yeah, because it, you, and this is such an enormous finding because it, for multiple reasons, because video takes so much data and they don't... Have, data is a luxury for these people. So despite all these issues, they are still consuming video and they're consuming it so much more intensely. And that is really mind-blowing, I think. So it shows because it allows them to really connect with people despite the failed institutions like schooling. And they're able to, say, learn and build their knowledge and reach out to the world and satisfy much of their curiosity and also partake and become co-producers, right? There's a lot of humor online, which we, you know, which go viral because people are able to make fun of that which is, you know, uh, commonly felt, like injustice, right? If you see how people talk about injustice, it's not through, like, finger-wagging, it's through humor. 
I mean, the Arab Revolution came from a lot of memes, actually, if you see the history of that. Really? Yeah, a lot of memes comparing these leaders to donkeys and China, it's the crab. There's all sort of sort of proxy visuals to speak about leaders because you have constant online censorship, constant, you know, data tracking to like purge these you know, act obvious, like, criticisms. So people have to be creative, far more. So it's a very visual, audio-centric world, and it has pushed and makes Twitter seem like old school, actually. Yeah, because, because I actually know examples of, of, of Western tech companies who, when they want to make their app ready for, for that global audience, that they actually strip it down, like they actually make some sort of light version which is which doesn't make any sense because they should actually make their app even more audiovisual and even more yeah i mean the classic case was facebook free basics right they th i mean it was good intent so to speak and also clever marketing strategies facebook said well okay, so the governments are not going to get their act together in all these low-income countries. So what we'll do is we're going to become the, we're going to break net neutrality and say, okay, screw that, but we're going to rescue billions of populations by giving them free, limited internet. What they meant is Facebook, right? Free Facebook, So yeah. Facebook became the internet, but hey, you know what? At least they got something. So Myanmar, which is Burma, went from 2% of internet access to 55% in one year because of Facebook. But they actually were consuming Facebook as the internet and entire government services were being built on it, right? But it the free basics version of it completely failed because it was a text only. And people are like, what the hell is that? Like, <laughs> you know, this is extraordinarily boring. Why would we want to come yeah. even if it's free? Why so, would I want this boring internet? <laughs> exactly. So only when Facebook made it, it's like gave its full offering. And this is, I think, also this condescension. Surely they want like a watered down product, right? I mean, mm -hmm. at least it's better than nothing. But it's a reverse. It's like these people are conspicuous consumers. They want more because what they're paying for is on in comparison to their income, far more than you and I. So it's a luxury product. So they expect the full package and more. Yeah. It's a whole, you know, psychological flip, right? If you just mentioned Myanmar and Facebook, which is, and I'm going to touch on, on quite a serious topic, It's, it's probably an example of, of how dangerous it can be if a Western tech company enters a market that they do not know. Because, because it, in effect, Facebook there was, was used to what ultimately ended up to genocide and stuff because they just didn't understand the, the culture or they didn't have the boots on the ground to really manage that properly. Yeah, I mean, like, okay, so we shouldn't just attribute it to Facebook because obviously is the social situation. But, you know, it's like either tech companies get, like, the credit for the revolutions or get blamed for, I mean, that democracy decline. And I think, yeah, but that being said, you're absolutely right that they have responsibility. And it's not like they're surprised. It's just that tech companies, if they can help it, will not hire human moderators. They don't they hate the reality that you need human moderators. And worse yet, you need even more human moderators in the age of AI. And they would love to say they're automating everything, but they're not. In fact, the more they try to automate, for every level of automation, they need like twice the number of human moderators yeah. to get it right. Because culture is very hard to automate. Because it, like, think about a joke. Is this satire? Is this literal? Yeah. 
I mean, how are you supposed it's to? Ironic, it's ironic. It's all about this, context, right? Yeah. And we've, we're so far from that. Yeah. And uh, I think so that's, that is really in Myanmar, the issue was that, of course, they did not actually even have a local team in that language. And they actually had NGOs who were doing it voluntarily and flagging content for them. But they, you know, basically didn't listen fast enough. But they did get their act together afterwards. Okay, you could say, well, that's kind of late, but it's better late than never. But it showed that they could get the act done if, if they, they commit to it. And I guess this is why the whistleblower has gained this attention today is that it shows that, you know what, these companies, they just do it as a Band-Aid and then they let go of it just when the spotlight is not on them anymore. And that's sad. So it has to be a really a continuous regulation and pressure on them. And not just Facebook, we're talking about all tech. I mean, obviously, Facebook's become the face of all tech companies on how to get response. We, we like piling onto yeah. Facebook. At, at yeah, exactly. Point. I mean, like, you know, I mean, like, look at the the terrible, I think, um, twist with the media, right, where they show that, oh, the headlines was Instagram, like uh, teenagers uh, uh, are expressing that they're getting more suicidal and depressed because of Instagram. But then if you went into the report, it said that, but twice as many said they found solidarity and community because especially during the pandemic and i was so disappointed by the mains so-called mainstream media bbc new york times it's like this is why people are losing faith in these uh you know proper traditional publication outlets why do you need to you know come up with these sort of clickbait headlines like selection bias that we exactly, just exactly because there's plenty of material to criticize facebook don't don't try to like game a report i mean isn't it bad enough what you already found uh, so yeah that was a real shame because it's such an important finding is that people are finding solidarity online and to dismiss that especially young po- people who actually got a lot of strength from that is it really puts us a step far behind, you know? Yeah, but still it makes me think that we haven't really thought through the impact of technology, which is a double, again, a double-edged sword that, that there's a lot of good, there's a lot of risk, but we should yeah, be, be more mindful about it maybe. Well, I mean, we can keep thinking about it until we die. <laughs> but the thing is, it's like, you know what, we we think about it, but we have to continuously do these kind of, uh, you know, regular auditing processes. Because see, the, basically, we need to look at these platforms as living organisms. Uh, just like us, you know, some days you're going to be healthy, some days you're not. And if you do your regular checkups, you, you know, you're constantly checking yourself and you're making sure you are fine, you know, and other institutions that are also regulating you, you have police in a democratic state, then you will behave in certain ways in public and private, which is, you know, the right way to be. And I think that's pretty much how we need to handle technology companies and their platforms because these have become critical public spaces and communicative spaces. So we will never get one solution. It's going to be the whole spectrum of human ingenuity and, of course, from the positive to the negative. We just need to steer it in the right direction. It's like... Basically everything in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's it's become a public space. I mean, it's just a, a fact, right? I mean, you can say, oh, because of these monopolies, which is true. And this network effects, which deepen monopolization. But the fact remains is beyond this 
point in time where, well, Facebook, Twitter, these usual suspects have become the very critical spaces where we communicate with each other and share, you know, our everyday thoughts. We had a researcher over, I think, on the first day, and she made the comparison um, when talking about AI, which, of course, can do a lot of good. It can do a lot of bad. And she made a comparison about the car. Like, yes, mm -hmm. bad stuff happens with cars. That doesn't mean we have to do away with them entirely. We just need to be very mindful about, okay, these, these, these suboptimal behaviors, how do we tackle them? What laws do we need? Which, which code of conduct do we need to do? But nobody says, let's not use cars anymore because of the... Well, based on if you... Uh, yeah, depending on uh, the policies nowadays, right? Yeah. Coming into cities. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's true. It's just more like the type of cars or even like reimagining the future of transport. Are we going to be in those little capsules, you know, moving around? I mean, sure. I mean, the, I think it comes down to nobody... Cars are just a, a tool in the end, Right. But the question is, it goes deeper into the human desire to for mobility, and you know of the dis, of discovery, right? It goes back in time. Why do people get out of their comfort zone? Was it really just greed to cross the seas and like put your life at risk? It's just very human of us. Is we are just so damn curious about the world, and then now, of course, our planet and outside of the planet, right? But. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing to have this kind of curiosity, but also it needs to be measured based on at what expense, right? So at whose cost? And these are valid questions to ask. Yeah. I suggest we look for some answers after the break. Studio Shift. Fast forward. High, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me I'm feeling good fly out in the sun you know what I mean don't you know butterflies all having fun you know what I mean sleep in peace when day is done that's what I mean and this old world is a new world in a bold world Shine, you know how I feel. 
prachtig nummer. Nina Simone, Feeling Good. Nog net erbij in het laatste blok, laatste stuk van deze studio shift. Het laatste kwartier eigenlijk van die driedaagse met Freddy en onze gast van vanavond. Spreker van vanavond, ook vooral auteur van dat boek The Next Billion Users, Freddy. Yeah, so Pyle, these next billion users, would you say that we feel threatened by them or that we just see huge dollar signs? Oh, totally dollar signs. I I don't, well, it depends where they're coming from. If they're coming, if you're an American and they're coming from Russia, you're like, oh my God, our democracy is at stake, right? So it's very like, send all, oh, it's from China, then look at the Chinese, they aren't we better than them? Like, so it's like, you know, the whole geopolitics between them. But in general, it's more like they see this, you know, classic in the 70s, a starving child with the ribs out. And you're like, oh, now if we just, yeah. just put a mobile phone in that hand and say, all right, you know, at least that would be like if us doing some service. just open a McDonald's over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would be so much no, better. It's a, look, it's a data-driven economy. And there is obviously that if you are designing and you're building AI-based technologies, I mean, where are you getting the data from? It's like, and there's a race uh, for data and it's happening outside the West. So there is that panic that if I don't open up, if I don't look at these markets, I'm an idiot. I need to account my shareholders. So there's a lot of pressure. And just in my experience in the last few years, it's My conversations are like, look, this is not typically my audience, but I think I'm supposed to look at them. So it's this real, like a gun to your head, like, damn it, now I have to look at them? They're complicated, they're a hard market. And, you know, the truth is that they can't pay. Like, how much can we squeeze? And they also, let's give a more generous interpretations. Wouldn't we be assholes to like try to squeeze that one little saving of theirs, you know, for us? So there's this whole variety of emotions, but it's actually not the case because you have to innovate business models, which is where they are paying anyway, uh, like with their data, right? Data is their currency. So how do you get the attention and can you do good while you are also getting the data? And I think that's something that we need to rethink. But moreover, that they can be co-creators, partners, Because you may not be actually able to figure it out. And it's okay. You don't live in these contexts. That's why we collaborate. But you still see these old-fashioned companies, you know, these multinationals saying, okay, I'm going to have my, uh, you know, uh, back office in, like, in India, like, Philippines, etc. And they will do the, you know, mindless work. They will follow my instructions. But they are not tapping into people who actually know the context, who have ideas and contributing to the companies. And I think smaller companies that way are doing better, right? I was going to ask about, yeah. like, which companies would you think get it? Like, like. Yeah, I think it's coming from, so we tend to see the West versus the rest. And this is more like China was already looking at India as a potential And look at the, just follow the money, right? That's the common phrase is, where did the venture capital go? And a lot of it went from Chinese tech companies like Alibaba and the usual, like so much venture capital funding went into Indian tech. And thanks to China, by the way, India for was able to generate all these new kinds of apps from Paytm to a variety Smado, of different. The, yeah, there was some, you know, Swiggy, Zomato, exactly. And... Uh, you know, at the beginning of the internet, everyone thought that India would totally 
overtake China because, hey, we had all these advantages, uh, English language because of British colonialism, Chinese, Chinese didn't have that, right? And the internet was such a dominant English-based uh, sort of space. And then, of course, all the techies. I mean, India and its Silicon Valley, right? Like it was considered the other Silicon Valley. And yet we did not get the same kind of Silicon Valley status like Chinese companies have because we imitated, we copied, we thought we would collaborate, we followed the rules of the Silicon Valley in the United States. And we just basically built more of the same. Yeah. And China decided to create their walled garden and did all these innovations because they were condescended to. So many multinational CEOs said, yeah, they just imitate our nations. What are we going to learn from them? And now they're, you know, biting their tongue because they realize we need to copy them yeah. if you want to stay ahead in this race, right? Yeah, and you, you mentioned Reliance, uh, the, the, the big company in India. And, and now you see like companies like Facebook, Googling, like basically falling over themselves to, to try to still invest in that company because... Yeah, I mean, well, we've already partnered with them. Disney's partnered with them. Like, so there's partnerships. Like, Wal Walmart has tried to get a new lease to life because it's like Walmart is like a signal in the U.S. like for someone from a whole different generation with a very old school business model. And they've rebirthed by investing in, you know, uh, apps in India. So... I mean, things are changing, money's flowing differently, and now it's going to be Africa, as we see, right? A lot of innovators, like whether it's in Nigerian apps to, you know, it's um, or Turkey, right? Like how gaming is really radical in Turkey. Like they are at the forefront of how to actually monetize also. Yeah. I mean, people don't think about this. They just don't think about these, you know, different countries and why they are ahead in the race. They're doing something interesting and we need to look at it. I would like to thank you, Pao, because yeah. we talked a lot these past few days about innovation in our own humble little country. But I think you, uh, you stretched out the possibilities and you've showed us that there is actually quite a, an interesting space if we just look at it more thoroughly. I'm very curious what our evening visitors will think of this message, but I'm very happy that you wanted to share it beforehand with all, all our listeners now. Yeah, thanks. I'm really happy to be here and uh, really enjoy this conversation. Yeah, with pleasure. Goed, begin van deze avond sowieso nog en, en zeker een heel mooi laatste blok van deze drie dagen Studio Shift. Al gaan we dat zo meteen ook nog wel op een, een heel mooie manier helemaal afronden en helemaal afsluiten. Studio Shift. Fast forward. No me importa lo que de mí se diga. Vivo usted su vida, que yo vivo la mía. Que solo es una, disfruta el momento. Que el tiempo se acaba y pa' atrás no verá. Bebiendo, fumando y jodiendo. Sigo vacilando de parito los días. Y
la botella para arriba. Siempre la móvil la tenemos prendida. Vengo a mandarla hasta que se haga de día. Sigo rulito que es la mía. Salió el sol. Goedemiddag, goede avond eigenlijk bijna. Het is een paar minuten voor vijf. Studio Shift. Shift. Studio Shift. Studio Shift. En dan zijn, zijn we eindelijk echt aan het einde van deze mooie driedaagse weer. De driedaagse van Studio Shift. Freddy, je bent er nog even bij blijven zitten. Maar eigenlijk voor de eerste keer van deze drie dagen in de studio, CEO van In de Pocket, Jeroen Lemaire. Goedemiddag. Goedemiddag, Bert. Hoe gaat het, Jeroen? Ja, fantastisch. Uh, vorig jaar mocht ik af en toe ook iets presenteren. Ja, ik heb je gemist wel in deze drie dagen, studio, moet ik zeggen. Ja, mijn collega's hebben beslist dat er wel betere talenten zijn bij In de Pocket om hier in de studio te zijn. En ze hebben absoluut uh, gelijk, dus ik mocht een beetje backstage meegenieten en het was, het was fantastisch, ja. Ja, om nog eens te, te, te gewoon te benadrukken, om het, het verhaal nog eens te kaderen, Jeroen, waarom doen jullie dit eigenlijk deze driedaagse? Uh, goeie vraag. Ik, ik, ik heb het mezelf ook wel afgevraagd op een bepaald moment, want we zijn hier... Dat de facturen... Uh, er... <laughs> Het is echt direct. Ja, maar, maar daarvoor ook al, want ja, we zijn hier radio aan het maken over eigenlijk redelijk uh, ja, brede topics. Maar als je in onze sector zit, vind je dat breed waar we over praten. En als je van buiten kijkt, dat het wel iets meer gefocust is op digital natuurlijk. Um, maar kijk, In The Pocket is uh, een digital product studio. Wij maken digitale producten. Hè. En dat klinkt voor sommigen een beetje als een triviale activiteit. Hè. Dat is ook gewoon de mensen die kunnen programmeren en zo ook de mensen die met uh, Figma of, of, Sketch, uh, 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 of Sketch kunnen werken. En je zal designs hebben, je zal code hebben en je zal producten uh, hebben. Um, en, dan, uh, en dan lijkt dat alsof dat het bandwerk is. Of, of, of dat je die mensen, dat, hetzelfde als mensen die aan het werk zitten in een fabriek. Um, maar dat, is, dat zit heel ver van, van de waarheid. We zitten in een een, een, een bedrijf zoals zoveel actief in onze sector, waar, waar kennis het allerbelangrijkste is. En dat kennisveld evolueert aan een enorm tempo. En er zijn steeds meer mensen die komen werken in die, in die sector en voor wie die wereld open gaat. En design blijkt niet zo simpel te zijn als gewoon een beetje knoeien in Figma. En programmeren blijkt een heel landschap te zijn. En data blijkt dan een hele nieuwe wereld te zijn die open gaat. En dus dat is bij In The Pocket iets dat leeft. Dat is onze kenniscultuur. We investeren daar ook echt in. We willen ook de mensen aantrekken die, die daartoe aangetrokken zijn. En we willen onze, onze klanten en eigenlijk onze peers, iedereen in de sector daar mee in bad uh, trekken en, en, en we willen ook leren van hen en we willen de kennis die wij hebben uh, naar buiten brengen. Dus dat is wat we doen, drie dagen lang uh, onszelf onderdompelen in de meest boeiende topics van digital, omdat we zo eigenlijk overtuigd zijn dat we betere producten gaan maken en dat we 
gelukkige gebruikers gaan hebben van die producten. Ja, we zijn ondergedompeld geweest. We hebben anderen ondergedompeld inderdaad door in die drie dagen. Freddy, je hebt ook ja, samen met collega's dat, dat programma gemaakt. Alles een beetje gekeken. Wat, wat willen we doen? Wat willen we brengen? Wie willen we uitnodigen? Um, de simpele vraag, hoe begin je daar eigenlijk aan? Het is ergens, pas op, het is, het is pittig. Hè. Drie dagen, dat is, dat is best wel, ik denk dat we, ja. vooral jij Bert, ja, je hebt ja, ongeveer twintig uur ja. aan elkaar gepraat, dus dat is, dat is niet weinig. Maar wat Jeroen ook zegt, het komt ergens niet uit de lucht vallen, omdat we onderschatten dat misschien dat wij, allee, in wezen ja, zijn we developers, designers, strategen, product managers, maar we zijn ook heel geopineerd en dat onderschatten we soms dat we, eh, wij hebben een heel specifieke kijk op hoe dat je digitale producten maakt, wat, dat, wat dat je kan betekenen voor gebruikers. En net omdat we die, die meningen hebben, ja, dan voel je dat dit is één moment in het jaar, maar dat zit er al lang aan te komen. Weet je, al die topics die je hoort, die zijn al heel vaak aan lunchtafels, aan andere tafels, aan, aan whiteboards besproken. En dan is dit ja, eigenlijk gewoon de, de spreekbuis geven aan mensen om te zeggen van oké, okay, weet je... Uh, machine learning en user experience, daar zit veel potentieel. Dit is niet de eerste keer dat ze daarover spreken. Dus dat programma maken is, is op dat vlak uh, wel leuk, omdat je... Ja, het is een beetje in het hoofd kijken van in de pocket. Ja, klinkt logisch, maar dat is inderdaad ook gewoon de essentie van, van wat er effectief leeft. Daar gaat het dan uiteindelijk wel over. Anders zou het niet kloppen. Als, als er nog niet al maanden over bezig waren, is het ja. niet wel wat er leeft natuurlijk. Ja. Het is letterlijk zo, als je bij ons uh, je boterhammen zou komen opeten over de middag en, en zeker doen, Bert... En Ik moet het echt nog eens komen doen, wel. Het uh, is welkom. Of als je vrijdagavond een pintje op ons uh, terras komt, uh, komt drinken, dan praten wij letterlijk over die topics. Over uh, van, tja, hoe, hoe zit het nu met uh, internetgebruikers in, uh, in India en in China bijvoorbeeld. Maar ook over accessibility en wat kunnen wij doen als bedrijf om dat beter te maken. Of ja, hoe, hoe moet je omgaan met complexe algoritmes... Uh, naar de gebruiker toe. Wat met de risico's die eraan verbonden zijn en hoe kunnen we dat duidelijk maken. En daar zijn we letterlijk over aan het praten in onze vrije tijd, tussen aanhalingstekens, tot op een bepaald uur. Ik ga er eerlijk in zijn, er zijn momenten. Ja, ja. Andere ja, tuurlijk, topics, tuurlijk. Het uh, klinkt echt alsof ja. wij niet anders doen dan. Ik ging vragen, Freddy, wanneer praten jullie bijvoorbeeld eens over het weer? Dat gebeurt ook wel nog. Het weer nu niet, <laughs> maar uh, vele andere topics ja, ook. Uh, tuurlijk. tuurlijk. Uh, Jeroen, hoe kijk je nu terug op de voorbije drie dagen, op, op Studio Shift 21? Um, ja, het was ongelooflijk. Het was de tweede keer dat we het deden. We waren iets minder nerveus, um, denk ik. En uh, ik heb ook wel die, die naturel een beetje gevoeld. We, worden, uh, we kunnen onszelf een klein beetje radiomakers uh, noemen, hoop ik. Hè. Um, en, en, en ik denk vooral dat we ervan genoten hebben. Iedereen bij In The Pocket kreeg ook superveel reacties uh, binnen. Een beetje ook zoals vorig jaar. De cijfers moeten nog goed binnenkomen, maar uh, allee, we zullen zeker meer dan 6000 unieke luisteraars gehad hebben over drie dagen tijd. Dat weten we al in onze sector, dus in de digitale sector. Allemaal mensen die met de, met de materie bezig zijn, dat is wel uitzonderlijk, uh, denk ik. Vroeger gaven wij enkel een evenement in onze kantoren en waren we blij om daar uh, 300 mensen te ontvangen, maar dus die 6000 gaan we nooit uh, binnenkrijgen en die kunnen we wel op deze manier bereiken. Dus dat is uh, super. Ja, absoluut, dan wil ik jullie beiden en vooral alle collega's van In de Pocket ook bedanken voor de voorbije drie dagen. Heel fijne gesprekken gehad. Heel veel van de collega's die inderdaad wel, ik wil ze gerust al wat radiomakers noemen, allemaal bijzonder goed gedaan. Dan is bij deze de drie dagen eigenlijk bijna afgerond. Nog niet helemaal, want er staat eigenlijk nog één collega klaar. 
Waarvan... Ik denk dat wij ook nog jou moeten bedanken. Ja, ga je beginnen? Oh, ja. Ik, ik, Gaan we beginnen? Ik ga het zeer snel doen, want ik, 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 ik wil niet klinken als een, als een burgemeester. Ik zou me toch ook een slechte CEO voelen als ik niet. Dank u plaats waar het nodig is. De vele, vele ITP'ers die hier aan voorbereid hebben, die research gedaan hebben, die interviews gedaan hebben bij deze. Dikke merci, collega's. Uh, onze data scientist en muzikant Sebastian, die hier ook klaar staat om nog een plaatje op te leggen. Ja. Maar die ook de jingles heeft gemaakt uh, voor uh, Studio Shift. Natuurlijk het voltallige marketingteam. Ze staan hier ergens buiten ook, denk ik. Hey, Brett, uh, Michiel en uh, Louis, die echt wel de, de organisatorische motor waren achter Shift en die het uh, gedaan gekregen hebben. Hey. Uh, jij ook, Bert, onze hof-radiomaker. Ik weet niet of dat een woord is, maar, uh, maar bij, deze. Bij, deze, bij deze wel. Je was fantastisch. Zonder jou zou het geen radio zijn, denk ik. Maar zou hier als een scoutclub uh, <laughs> proberen, uh, proberen nuttige dingen in de eter krijgen. En nu voelt het uh, voor ons echt uh, super professioneel aan. Dat is door jouw overzicht, je rust en je professionaliteit. En niet te vergeten onze Freddy, uh, de bezieler. Ik uh, denk dat ik het zo wel mag, uh, mag noemen. Uh, jij waakt over het concept, vuurt de troepen aan. Uh, je bent de man achter de schermen, maar ook voor de schermen tegelijkertijd. Dus dat is redelijk uh, waanzinnig. Uh, dus dikke merci, je bent een beetje de godfather van dit uh, gekke concept. Uh, laten we er straks een beetje op drinken. Dat wordt een nieuw visitekaartje, denk ik, voor Freddy. 